Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we stand in awe of your power. The one who rules over heaven and earth, Lord, we submit to that in this moment. We thank you for who you are, for the hearts that you're touching, for this moment that we can worship. God, you're so good. And this is a moment to give back, to express to you our gratitude. And we stand in humility of who you are, God. Lord, we ask that you be with us in these next few moments. May your spirit continue to move. May we know that you have won the victory and we stand in that victory with you in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Church, good morning. Afternoon now, it's 12.01. How are we doing this morning? Doing good? As Isaiah mentioned, we have a night of worship, and we had actually planned, we were, we were just speaking in faith, hoping that we'd be in the warehouse by July 22. Unfortunately, we're not going to be. Um, just like anything, there's delays and, and um, things that are just waiting to come in so that we can get our certificate of occupancy. So where we'll be here um, on July 22 having our night of worship, we are doing those um, quarterly now. So um, we just want to invite you to be there. Unfortunately, it won't be in the warehouse, but things are moving along and we are excited about what it's going to look like and going to be and the many things that we can do. Um, in there, but we'll just have to hold off a little bit longer. Maybe August. We're not going to make any more promises. We're just saying the fall. Fall of 2022, uh, we hope to be in, in the warehouse. Um, but we are so happy just to have a space where we can worship and be together. Uh, I know there's a special group here of, um, of canvassers, and, and we want to welcome you guys. I hope you're staying cool out there. It's like one of the hottest summers to be doing that kind of work. So um, we just want to welcome you guys and, and glad that you could join us in worship. Any men out there who do not have a wife yet, uh, I have some advice. Get you a woman who's going to tell you the truth all the time. My wife Vanessa said I speak too long, so we're going to make this one a little bit shorter. So she keeps it honest and I'm glad she does. Uh, I think she looked over when I was writing a few more notes over there. She's like, what are you, what are you doing? Um, but I'm going to be brief today. I want to start with a, a question, and I, I do this a lot, but do we have any, any people in here who, are, uh, who see the world as a glass half full type of personality? You are like optimistic no matter what situation you're in. You're like, man, this still everything is going to work out okay. If you're that type of personality, um, you're most likely someone that um, people like to be around. Pastor Matt, when he first got here, um, I learned quickly that he is a super optimistic person. And we'd explain to him the situations at church, kind of keeping him, getting him up to speed as to like just what's going on, the challenges, the hurdles that we're facing, the good and the bad. And um, <clears throat> I remember specifically just going into his office and saying, hey man, like this is what's going on. It's just been frustrating, uh, specifically on, on, you know, one thing or the other, and even stuff with the warehouse, and his response would always be, ah, oh, it'll all work out. 
And I'm like, no, you don't know. It's not going to work out because we've been struggling with this for this amount of time. And he's like, ah, it's going to be fine. And that would be his response. And I'm like, this guy is not living in reality. And I have to say, now that he's been there here for a certain amount of time, things have worked out. So many of us see the world in a glass half empty. And maybe you're that person, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, um, because maybe you're just pessimistic. And if you've taken the Enneagram, you know that usually the pessimistic person, the one who's just kind of downing everything and has a negative view on outcomes, you're a six. Um, and, and typically those are the people that no matter how good your life is going, you could be just, I mean, everything in your life is running smoothly. I mean, things are just in your favor. Job situation's great. You found the love of your life. You just, just things just, good things just keep happening to you, but you can't enjoy the present because you're focused on the future, on this is bound to fail. Something is bound to collapse, and I know all this good stuff is going to come to an end. And maybe, maybe that's you, that you're just so hinged and, and focused on it's just not going to last, that you can't enjoy the present. And, and, you've, and you've caught yourself saying these two words, we'll see. We'll see. So much good happening in our world. And, and I don't blame you. I, I find myself doing the same thing. There's so much happening around us, maybe to us, that we've just been scarred. And it's hard to see the good in any situation because we know that things are bound to take a turn. Or maybe you just had a great life, a great childhood, and, and, and you know that, that things are always going to work out for you. If you're a millennial, we, we are now not the main um, workforce anymore from what I've been reading. Now it's the Gen Z who's coming up and being, taking up much of, of the workforce in our, in our world. But if you're a millennial, you grew up with two catastrophic events. You were a child when these things happened, or you were close, 9-11. You saw the whole nation just fall and go through a crazy time in our world, but you also saw an economic collapse in 2007-2008. Millennials saw their parents lose their jobs, lose their homes, go through really economic hardship, and so we don't want to go into situations that look like they're going to fail because we've seen what that looks like. And so our mentality a lot of times is, I don't know because I know things can go south very quickly. And I can't help but as we read through the story of the early church, and I put myself in a position like Paul or Silas in Acts 16 as they're going from city to city building the early church, I can't help but think what kind of person I would be, what kind of disciple, what kind of worker of Jesus I would be. Would I be one that would be just enjoying the moment? And I see Paul being more of that personality. Really just taking in all the wonders that Jesus is doing through the work of the Holy Spirit. Or would I be maybe like Silas and, and, and just following along, being super devoted. Silas was like a six on the Enneagram. And he kind of went along. Sixes, they, although they are pessimistic, they are loyal. They question, they ask, but they're super loyal. And Silas was super loyal to Paul. And maybe just saying, I don't know about this. I'm just waiting for something to collapse. Because they had, just, they had just seen their Savior, the Savior of the world, the one who came to seek and save the lost, be crucified, but then rise again. And they knew what was coming. They knew what their future was. And I don't know what I would be. Would I be someone just enjoying what God was doing in that moment? Or would I, would I would be thinking, well, my day is coming. I don't know what that looks like. 
And as we pick up the story in Acts 16, verse 16, Paul and Silas, they had just seen some miracles in Lydia being healed in Philippi. And if you have your Bibles, I, I gave the wrong translation up there, so if it if it's, doesn't make sense to what I'm reading, just forgive me, I apologize. Um, it might be the New King James Version, but I don't know. Acts 16, verse 16 Paul and Silas are now in a new situation. They, they find themselves in a unique position. It says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that, she, that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged him into the marketplace, them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they are, throw, and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So here we have Paul and Silas. They're journeying along. They're going from city to city, planting churches, building up what we know now as the Christian movement. They had been given this task. And the very first thing they do as they enter into a new town, like Jesus would do, is they go to a place of prayer. Now, if we know, and we've read the Gospels, we, we, we know that Jesus would sometimes move into a very secluded place, but they go to a public place of prayer, and it's by the water's edge. And usually, if you were in a town, and you were by the water, that's usually where a lot of the activity happened. It's where they got water, they took it back, but it's also where people would set up different marketplaces and, and, and things to sell. It was a very busy area, and there was a public place of prayer, and that is where they go when they enter Philippi. And they meet this woman, and it says that she was filled with a spirit. Now, usually when we associate, any, usually when we say the word spirit in church, we associate it with the Trinity, the Godhead, the, un, the, the forgotten God, as, as uh, a book puts it. We associate it with something related to God, but this woman was not filled with a godly spirit. It's actually the same spirit that in Deuteronomy 18 uses the word sorcery or divination. So we can pretty much come to a conclusion that this woman was possessed. And so they encounter this woman and she's rambling on and what she's saying isn't actually false. What she's saying is true. These are people who are preaching the word of God and it's something that if you receive it, you will be saved. So she followed Paul and Silas and, and uh, one commentator says that she did this for a few days. So you can see how Paul is getting pretty annoyed and if you know Paul's personality, he has doesn't have much patience so as this woman is following Paul and Silas it wasn't an act of her own doing it was this evil spirit within her that 
was telling her to go do this. The same evil spirit that was allowing her to be a fortune teller moved her into a direction towards Paul and Silas to start antagonizing these men. Saying, oh, these are the people that have the word of God. What they tell you is stuff that's going to save you. So Paul grows tired of it. And I wonder why would he tell her, why would he ask her to stop saying those things? Yes, they're false and maybe it got annoying, but there's a deeper meaning as to why Paul would tell her to stop. And he says, in the name of God, I command the spirit to leave. He identified that this woman was possessed. And in that very moment, the spirit, evil spirit, leaves this woman. Whenever we call on the name of the Lord, the devil has no chance. It's no chance. Paul reaches out to his God, and in that very moment, evil flees this woman. And then he tells her to stop and rejects the testimony that she's patronizing them and antagonizing them, and he rebukes it. And why would he do that? The Lord will always refuse a testimony from the devil or a heart that has evil intent. It's our duty to also refute that as well. Because if the line isn't drawn, then it would look like God and the devil would have very similar interests. How many of you today have seen with your own eyes someone who speaks the name of God but lives in a way that doesn't really reflect who God is. Blurring those lines of good and evil. Now more than ever, lines are becoming more and more blurred in our society, in our culture. And some are good. The one that isn't tolerated in the eyes of God is between good and evil. But now more than ever, our lines becoming more and more blurred. If any of you guys have been to East End Market, it's this place called Winter Park Biscuit Company. Has anyone been there? If you're a good Adventist, you've gone because they have vegetarian chicken. And it's not like Sam's chicken. I mean, this, this is like the Adventist dream chicken sandwich, like if you are vegetarian. I mean, I've taken people there, and uh, they... They think it's, it's real. I mean, it's amazing. If you haven't gone, go. Um, Alyssa, who runs stuff back there, is also obsessed with it. Um, and I am too. But if you haven't gone, you should go. Because, I mean, it's getting so close that you really can't even tell the difference. And I don't mind that line blink, being blurred. That's not a problem for me. But here specifically, Paul is drawing that line between good and evil. Because if he doesn't, then people will begin to see that maybe God and the devil do have some similar interest and intent. And what really is the difference? The result of living a life on both sides is a watered-down gospel. We see it in pop culture. Maybe not so much anymore, but for a long period of time, we see an artist producing things that really didn't reflect Christ, but when they win an award, what's the first thing they do? They thank God. Showing people that maybe God and the devil have similar interests. 
Lines are being blurred, and it is our duty as Christians, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, to be the ones who draw that line. And so Paul, in the name of Jesus, he cast out this evil in her. And what would normally be good news, what what we usually see in Scripture when, when someone has been healed or or brought back to life, or a miracle happened, it's usually really good news, and and the the community around is celebrating there in awe of what happened. But this was different. See, this woman was making a lot of money for this businessman. Because of that evil spirit, she was able to tell the future, a fortune teller. And so now his income, one stream of income, was now cut off. And this businessman becomes really upset and he takes them to the magistrates to be tried. And this isn't the first time that we see something like this happen. Someone who is reflecting the Father who is saying we come in the name of God performing miracles to be tried. One of the most famous ones in Scripture is Jesus himself knowing the end results of what it means to represent the God of heaven and earth and to stand up and to be in a public place and perform a miracle or to even be the one who defines and draws that line. Have you ever wanted something so badly that you choose to not see the full scope of the situation? I'm guilty of it all the time. More so as a child, I've, I've learned from my mistakes But maybe there's something that you want so bad or you want something to happen that you just ignore or choose to not see part of the situation. Here, this businessman is taking these people, these Paul and Silas, and for what we know, maybe a group of people to the magistrates, and he's telling them that you need to do something with them, and he blames their identity and never brings up the miracle that they performed. Because deep down, he knows who these people represent, and the truth that they have to bring. So he gives the magistrates a half-truth and says, because of who they are, they're just, they're just bringing filth and lies into this community, and it isn't according to how we live, so we need to do something with them. And so they're arrested for no reason. For no reason at all, they're, tested, they're arrested and they're They're tried. Once again, we see someone being set free and another person being held captive. Jesus did this throughout his whole ministry, set people free, and in the end, him being held captive. Paul and Silas are now in this specific situation because they... We're speaking up, drawing the line in the public place of prayer where other people were witnessing, drawing the line for their God, defining God, who he was, and how separate that was from the evil in the world. A life with Jesus is a call to create change. If we truly believe that we are made in his image, and we surrender the idea that he died and he rose again, then what we submit to is a life of creating change. If we are made in his image, 
then we are called to create the future. We are called to be culture changers. It's what Jesus did while on earth in just three years, the impact he made in this world. If we are made in that image, then that also is our obligation, our duty, our call in this life. Paul and Silas understood that. And whenever they had the opportunity to create a change, to define a culture, to speak up for what they believed in, they did. And in this instance, it got them sent to jail. If we aren't constantly engaged with one another and redefining and refining who we are, our relationships with one another, testing our faith, holding each other accountable, not only within our community, but in the things that we see in this world, then we are no different than the people of this world. All they were trying to do was bring freedom in Jesus' name, and now they are held in captivity. Now the magistrates are summoned to deal with these two men, and the crowd begins to join in on the attack. It was just this man and some witnesses saw what happened, and as they become, as, as now they're tried, the people in this community join in on this attack. So they're sentenced and they're summoned. And the jailer is asked, once they are put in jail, he's asked to watch them carefully. If they, were, if they didn't hold any kind of power from an almighty God, why would they need to be watched carefully? The magistrates, the jailer, this businessman knew the power that they had and how it could threaten their life, their situation. So he's asked to watch them carefully. So as a result, they're put in a dungeon, their feet are put in stocks, and now they're in darkness. And then it's midnight. They're put in jail. There's a bunch of other, I imagine, other jailers in there, other inmates for whatever they've committed, they stole, they've killed, whatever it is. They are now with these people. They now are identified with a group of people that they are not like at all. Then midnight comes, and they begin to do something that is very unordinary. They begin to sing hymns and praises to God. Now you're probably reading this or you've read this and you're probably thinking, yeah, that's, I would have done that too. If I'm in jail at midnight, I'm going to sing hymns and praises to God. That's what I would do at midnight. It's so much more difficult and challenging to praise God in our dark moments. It's easy when it's bright and sunny and things are going great. But in the moments where we are put in dungeons, in darkness, in, in our lows in life. It's much harder to sing hymns and praises in those moments. You're just angry. You're upset. We ask ourselves, why am I in this situation? To the point where we curse God. But Paul and Silas begin to sing hymns and praises to their God. And they're probably one of their darkest moments of their life. So what can we learn from Paul and Silas in this situation? That even though their circumstances changed, their worship told others that their God didn't change. Even though their 
their ministry was at jeopardy and, and they were in the lows in their life, their God didn't change. Their God remained the same. No matter what happened in their life, they were going to sing praises. Even if they were put in jail at midnight, they were going to praise their God because they knew that their God was still good. In the midst of their darkness, God never changed. God was still good. The God who just saved Lydia days before, that is the God that they were worshiping. So it's the midnight hour, business as usual. These two crazy guys start singing hymns and praises. And I can't imagine jailers are asking the question, who, what are they singing to? Who are they singing about? And, and people are just confused. Maybe some of them are just, they're just trying to sleep. But once again, in a public place where others could hear, they begin to praise the constant God, the King of heaven and earth. Even though their lives could be on the line, they don't stop worshiping. But never did something like this happen in a jail. Worship breaks out in a place you'd never think of. And it says that God heard their worship. And he was moved by their faith. And the ground shook and the gates blew open of this jail because of their worship. God was moved and once again, gates are opened. And in this moment, God through his miracle breaking power does something that others witness and they have an opportunity to escape, but it says that they don't. This jailer now who's supposed to be watching over these inmates sees what is happening and he's about to take his own life because he knows if these people escape the repercussions for him and what's going to happen to him is much worse he'd rather just take his own life because he doesn't want to face what could happen to him if these inmates left on his watch but Paul and Silas says don't do it we're still here we haven't left and it says that this man is now has, has been a witness to their worship and asked what he has to do to be saved. In Paul and Silas' darkest moments, they continue to praise God and they continue to be a witness of their God. I don't know how I would function in jail, in a dungeon. I don't know what my posture would be. I don't know what your posture would be. And maybe you ask yourself, would I be a Paul or a Silas? Two different personalities, two different perspectives, two different views of their situation. One of them just saying, I knew this was coming. The other one just living in the moment, but both worshiping the good God. And because of that, they become witness and their testimony is heard. And this man who once was holding them, holding them captive captive is asking how he can be saved worship it changed everything in philippi worship it changes everything for you and for me when we enter into worship with all of our hearts it not only breaks our chains and sets us free 
from whatever it is we're going through and holding us in bondage, but it's an open invitation. It's an opportunity for someone to witness the goodness of God, how good he is. In moments where the world is falling apart, we worship because we know that our God hasn't fallen apart. We know that our God has never changed, and he's still good, no matter what is happening in our lives. And that expression of worship is our testimony. Worship changed everything in Philippi. Worship changes everything for you and for me. Worship creates an inward change and an outward invitation. We worship with our hands, we worship with our mouth, with our eyes. But it isn't just about coming to church and singing songs and listening to a sermon. Because worship is bigger than that. The strides we take, the places we go, the way we act, the way we treat people, our perspective in life is all worship. So when we worship, it isn't simply for ourselves, but it's for others to see the testimony of how good God really is. Now, like never before, should we worship as loudly and boldly as ever? It's our testimony. It tells the story of the gospel, the good news. And it's not just for you. Worship isn't a me thing. It's a giving back. It's our testimony. It's how we are witness. And it just doesn't happen in this room. How serious are we taking our commitment to Jesus? How serious are you taking your worship to him throughout the week, on the weekends? What does that look like? What does your commitment to Christ look like? Ask yourselves this question right here, right now. Repeat after me. Why am I here? Don't worry. I'll wait. I'll let that sink in. Why are you here? And maybe you know the answer. Maybe you're solidified in your faith and you walk a, a life of worship. That people see Jesus in you, and I, and I hope that's the case. But maybe you don't have that answer. You're not here by accident. You're here for a purpose. That purpose to submit yourselves to the kingdom of heaven and earth, to the king of heaven and earth, to the champion who's already won the battle. Why are you here? How serious are you taking your walk Christ. Maybe for some of you, you were invited here, and this is an invitation for you to consider a life of worship. That knowing in the moments where you might be down and out, and you're just going through it, financially you've lost someone in your life, or whatever the case may be, when your feet are in stocks, you're in darkness, we still worship. When things are going great and life is just moving along, we still worship. Because no matter what, God is still good. 
And we know the end result. We know, we know what's to come. There's good and there's bad. There's evil. But in our worship, in our standing up for who we are as we walk through life, in the store, out, when you walk out this door, when you go home, in your everyday life, it is an act of worship. It is an outward expression. It is standing up to draw that line between good and evil so that people don't think that God and Satan have similar interests. If we are not drawing that line, if we are not standing up for who we are as people of God, then the line becomes blurred. Everyone else has an opinion in this world. Why can't we? It's our duty, it's our obligation to live a life of worship. And the product of that is to define the line that God's never changed. That line's never blurred. He's still one. And we give a life back to him and thanking him for what he's done for us. So how serious are you taking your commitment to Jesus? If it's just simply to come here to sing songs and listen to a sermon, you can do that in jail. Paul and Silas clearly did. Or is it a stride every step you take and act? outward expression of thanking God for who he is and being a disciple of Christ wearing Jesus on your sleeve my prayer is for each of us to encounter Jesus like never before may this be the catalyst the thing that pushes you forward and, and maybe you're the person who you're solid in your faith and you say, yeah, when I wake up every day is to live a life for Jesus, then I encourage you to take someone else by the hand who may not reflect that, to be bold, to call them out and to draw that line. Because I'm tired of people not seeing anything different when they come into church than when they go out into the world. I'm tired of people not seeing a difference in people who call themselves Christians. Everyone else has a voice. Why can't we? May we live a life that is a life full of worship, that is an outward expression that shows our God is still good, He's never changed, and He's already won. May we keep that promise he is our champion and that we may be bold and never ashamed of who he is that whatever public place we go people see Jesus in us Father God Lord we thank you that you've championed this race and that what we do we, are, we were created to worship and may this be just a piece of that may what we do here just be part of that equation but every step that we take be a step towards you. May it be an outward expression of the goodness. No matter what our situation is, no matter what's happening around us in this world, things may be falling apart and falling down, but we look up because we know that no matter what, you are still good, and that is why we worship you. In Christ's name we pray.